You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. A couple of weeks ago, those who were here would recall I preached about the resurrection. And I made the claim at the time that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was necessary for several reasons, not least of which is that it ensures our own resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul wrote, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. I also said then that we will have recognisable but changed bodies in the afterlife. You'll recall if you were here that I took that from uh, a number of different passages of scripture, but there are a couple of primary ones we looked at. The first one was the account of Jesus appearing to his disciples after his resurrection, showing them the wounds in his hands, his feet and his side. To refresh your memories, that was from Luke 24. If we can have that up on the screen, please. Luke 24:36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marvelling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. The other passage was the story. Excuse me. It was the story of the rich man and Lazarus. We'll come back to that a little bit later on because there's some pretty important stuff for what I want to preach on this morning. Now, most of us have been to funerals at some stage of our lives. We all know the reality of death. If you've had the good fortune to have avoided the loss of a loved one so far in your life, brace yourself for a time is coming when you will experience it. Death is inescapable. Death is a consequence of that first sin back in the Garden of Eden. And unless Jesus comes back very soon, every single one of us will face death. It is appointed for man once to die, it says in Hebrews. None of us will get out alive. Death is a great enemy that's coming to claim all of us. So since we won't won't escape death, we should ask the question then, what's next? Eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. I'm sure you've heard that saying, that philosophy. It's a common philosophy, a common outlook on life that traces its origins, believe it or not, back to the Bible. But although it might be taken from the Bible, the meaning of that phrase is the exact opposite of what the Bible actually tells us. But in fact, if there's nothing after death, then that philosophy is precisely the attitude we should adopt. For if there's no life after death, if there is just death, burial, decomposition in the ground, 
then we better make the most of the life we've got now. We better enjoy it while we can. Have the most fun you possibly can, regardless of the cost and regardless of the consequences to other people. There's no earthly reason why we should care what happens to anyone else, nor why we should limit our own pleasure and enjoyment if there's no afterlife. But if there's any truth to the Bible, then it matters what our philosophy of life is. It matters how we act. It matters how we treat other people. For it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment. I also mentioned the other week the modern fascination with near-death experiences and with stories of people that have died, gone to heaven and come back to tell the story. I might just mention in passing that near-death experiences are just that, near-death. They are not death experiences. So I'm inclined to not build my theology of the afterlife on what people say about their near-death experiences. I can easily conceive of a significant difference between near-death and actual, final, never-to-come-back-from-death. And most importantly, some of these reports contradict what the scriptures say. There is, though, one biblical uh, report of someone going to heaven and returning. And uh, I'm sure you're all familiar with it. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Most Bible commentators think that Paul is actually talking about himself, an experience he had personally. No one knows for sure what he means by the third heaven. But what I find interesting in the context of the near-death experiences is that Paul says that this man heard things that cannot be told, that cannot be uttered. And interestingly, John, when he wrote in Revelation, said that he saw things in heaven that he was not permitted to write down and not permitted to talk about. Make of that what you will, but if Paul, the greatest theologian and evangelist of the early church, and if John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, were not permitted to talk about heaven and the things they saw then, then I take all these other reports with a grain of salt. It's not to say these people are deceived or that they're lying, that they've made it all up. It's just that I don't base my ideas of the afterlife on near-death experiences and supposed visits to heaven. The point of all this is just to say that if we take our theology from the Bible, the appropriate place to get it, we see that death is not the end. but It's a transition into a different state of experience, a different existence. There's a reasonably common teaching in Christian circles of soul sleep, a belief that when we die we cease to have any conscious existence. we sort of in a coma, if you like, until the Lord returns and then he wakes us up 
and we spend our conscious existence in eternity from that point on. I understand why some people would imagine that that's the truth, that they would read the Bible and see, say that uh, there is soul sleep when you die. But um, I think personally they make too much of the, the word sleep when Paul and others are talking about death and too little of passages that talk about a conscious existence when we die. The rich man and Lazarus, you will recall, is one that we're still coming back to, but it indicates a conscious existence after death. Another one is where Jesus told the thief who was hanging on the cross next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Not tomorrow, not next year, not 2,000 years' time, but today you will be with me in paradise. The Old Testament is not as clear about what happens after we die, but that's understandable because the Old Testament is unfolding revelation. It's God laying out his plans and his purposes bit by bit where he gives us a bit more of the puzzle, if you like, of redemption. But there are hints of a conscious afterlife in the Old Testament. Job, for example, said, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself. My eyes shall behold, and not another. David likewise, whose son conceived by adultery died, he fasted, he prayed, and he repented for seven days when the boy got sick. But when the boy died, David ate, cleaned himself up, and went to worship. And he told the people around him, While the child was still alive, this is in 2 Samuel, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. In Luke 16, Jesus tells us the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Probably a different Lazarus to the one that Jesus raised from the dead who had been already four days in the tomb. But both the rich man and Lazarus had entered into the, the afterlife. They'd both died and gone into the afterlife. Some people think that this is a parable, a fictitious story told to illustrate a truth. But the fact that Jesus names one of the characters suggests to me that it's actually real events he's reporting. Because in all of his other parables, without exception, there are no names. He talks about um, a Samaritan person and a Pharisee and and a farmer and things like that. But this one, he actually named someone. That tells me that Jesus is talking about real events. So in Luke 16, let's have a read of that. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. 
and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham says, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This story doesn't make any specific reference to the religious state of the rich man or Lazarus when they died. There's no mention of a funeral service for for Lazarus. He was a poor beggar covered with sores. Even the mongrel dogs from the area licked his sores. He was the lowest of the low. His life consisted of laying outside the rich man's gate begging for scraps of food to survive. No doubt the rich man's bank account wouldn't have suffered much of a hit if if he had have given Lazarus a square meal from time to time. But it seems he didn't. There's a pretty good chance that poor old Lazarus would not have been given a burial because he was so poor, because he was such an outcast. There's a pretty good chance his body would have been thrown on the rubbish heap outside of Jerusalem. But there, he was carried from there, he was carried by angels to Abraham's side, which implies that Lazarus was a righteous man in the sight of God. It also speaks to us of God's great concern for the poor, for the downcast, for the outcast, for the lonely. In contrast, the rich man was buried, likely with much pomp and ceremony and much wailing. The angels didn't come looking for him though. He found himself in Hades. Now there's something you need to know about Hades about the word Hades. Hades is a Greek word that refers to the place of the dead. Sometimes it's translated just simply as grave. The old King James used to translate it as hell. The corresponding Hebrew word in the Old Testament is Sheol. Sheol is no, has no reference to, to pain or pleasure. It's just the place where the dead go. But the word Hades is a combination of two other Greek words. One of them, Edo, means to see or to know personally. The other word is a negative, the one that's combined with is a negative, to give the meaning of unseen. Hence the reason why it's commonly used to refer to the grave. When you're buried, you go down into the ground, or in their case often put in a tomb with a stone across the door, and you're no longer seen. The other meaning of Hades, though, I find quite interesting. 
it means unknown, as in, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. That's a bit disturbing. Some people who have been prophesying, casting out demons and performing great miracles in Jesus' name will be rejected. I never knew you. How can this be? How can people that have been doing these things in Jesus' name be rejected? We'll have to come back to that another day, but if you want to dig into it a bit more, I suggest you read that passage. I think the key is in Jesus' description of them as workers of lawlessness. Read it in the context of the whole passage and it might become a bit clearer. Uh, Luke 20, uh, sorry, Luke 16. Oh, sorry. No. Matthew 7. 7, 21 to 23 and thereabouts. Read it in the context and see what it says about these workers of lawlessness. Then go away, examine your own life and your relationship with him. I hope and pray that if you do that, you will be encouraged when you do so. But if you find yourself disturbed about the prospect of Jesus saying, I never knew you, then clearly there are some things you need to get sorted out in your life. Hades doesn't appear to be the permanent place of the dead. It seems to be a holding place from what we can make in scripture on the way to a more permanent location. But as the rich man will attest, it's an excruciatingly unpleasant place to find yourself if you die outside of relationship with Jesus Christ. Interestingly, in the New Testament, Hades doesn't seem to be used in reference to righteous people, but only in reference to those who ignore or reject the claim of Christ on their life. But what about Lazarus, you ask? Wasn't he in Hades as well? Isn't that what the whole passage was about? Well, interestingly, the story makes no reference to Hades in relation to Lazarus, but only for the rich man. Lazarus was at, the, at Abraham's side, experiencing great pleasure and joy. And there was a great chasm between them that no one could cross. And just as it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment. The rich man hadn't yet entered his final resting place, In fact, we can't really call it a resting place because there was clearly no rest for him there. He hadn't entered his final destination, we probably should say. But there are several things that are clear about where he was. Firstly, he was aware of the separation between himself and Lazarus and Abraham. And he was suffering terribly and consciously suffering. If you've ever burnt yourself on a hot stove, you would would have experienced just the tiniest little sliver of the pain that burns can bring. Imagine an eternal flame that burns. If that tiny sliver stops you sleeping, stops you putting clothing over the top, gives you pain for days on end in some cases, from a tiny burn from a stove, imagine the pain of an eternal flame. 
The rich man recognised both Lazarus and Abraham. The rich man had an awareness of the good life that he'd experienced and enjoyed. And he also had an awareness of the suffering that Lazarus had gone through. You'll note that there was no crossing over from one side to the other after death. There's no second chance. This life is the only chance you get to make that decision that has eternal consequences. This life. The rich man still remembered the family he left behind and the need to warn them about what awaited them after death. There's no coming back from death. What about ghosts? People see ghosts. They see ghosts of Uncle Bill and they see ghosts of this woman that died in that old pub 100 years ago and things like that. What about ghosts? Isn't that the spirits of people coming back? Well, no, it's not. Those ghosts are actually demons. They're not the spirit of the person who has died. And if you've experienced ghosts in your house, I want you to be encouraged. That can be dealt with. Mel and I have done that with people. We've gone in and dealt with demons and spirits and things that appeared in people's houses. If you're a believer, it's not a big deal. It can be and should be dealt with. Who wants demons hanging around them when you don't have to have them? What about seances then? Don't they call up the dead? In seances, the spirit you've called up seems to know a fair bit about the person you've contacted. They seem to know intimate details about the person you've contacted. Um, I can tell you that seances are real. From personal experience, I can tell you that seances are real. I've been a part of one when I was a young bloke and witnessed a situation that terrified a big tough bikey that was there at the time as well, a Hells Angels type of bikey who wasn't frightened of anything. But this was a demonic experience and I had no understanding of this stuff at the time. But they're real. But you're actually contacting demons. And the scripture is very clear. You're not to do that. If you're a believer, do not do that. It's dangerous ground. If you've done that in the past, you need to repent, ask and receive God's forgiveness and uh, ask to be released from it. And if that's an issue for you, we can pray for you over those things later on and uh, get some release from it. But they are real and they are dangerous things to play with. So if you have any inclination that way, I urge you, turn away from it. The rich man, getting back to him, was aware that his brothers had also rejected God and that they needed to repent to avoid the suffering that he was experiencing. And Abraham pointed out that scripture is sufficient. Scripture is powerful enough to bring about faith for salvation. Faith comes by hearing, you'll recall Paul writing in Romans chapter 10. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Miracles may be helpful, but miracles alone are not enough to bring about saving faith. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, Abraham said, neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. Miracles are not enough for saving faith. And 
someone did rise from the dead, the greatest one of all. And still the Jews refuse to believe. And still modern man refuses to believe. Make sure you're not one of those who refuses to believe. That then raises, I think, a fairly obvious question. What happens to, baby, what happens to babies that are miscarried or that are aborted or that die in infancy? What happens to them? I can't imagine the devastating pain that must accompany that sort of loss. Mel and I felt a little, just a tiny little fraction of it when John was six weeks old and he almost died. And to this day it remains probably the most painful experience of our life. But God was gracious to us and gave him back. I can't imagine the devastation you would feel at the loss of a loved one, a little one. So I don't want to make light of this subject. The Bible though doesn't give us definitive answers to that difficult question. If for you the question of what happens to babies is only a difficult question, you've been fortunate to never have to experience it. Give thanks to God for that. But for those who have been through the darkness and the grief, it's an achingly painful question to address and a delicate one. So as I said, the Bible doesn't give us clear answers, but I think it does give us some pointers and some hints. David's confidence, which I mentioned earlier, that he would one day be reunited with his baby son, should give us some hope. John the Baptist, you'll recall, was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Again, Jesus, calling to himself a child, put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones to, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. And again Jesus said, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father who is in heaven seems to me that there is a special place in God's heart for babies and in God's plan for babies and children. David said in the Psalms, in Psalm 22, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. I knew I was cast from my birth and from my mother's womb you have been my God. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. 
In contrast, David says in Psalm 58, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. My conviction is that God is sovereign. My conviction is that it is God who overcomes opposition and unbelief, not that I make a decision to chase after him. And my conviction tells me that God is quite capable of changing a baby's heart in the womb still to save it. He overcame my unbelief when I was willfully sinful, when I was actively rebellious, when I was consciously running away from him. He overcame my unbelief and changed my heart. He did that for you too, if you're a believer. If he can do that for me, if he can do that for you who are actively sinful, willfully sinful, it's chicken feed to do that for a baby. So I said the Bible gives us no definitive answers about this, but instead asks us to trust God, to trust his goodness and his mercy and his faithfulness towards those who love him to a thousand generations. God has a purpose for each one of us and he will fulfil that purpose in our lives. That should give us confidence that his plan is a good plan. David said, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfils his purpose for me. I'm as convinced as I can be that believers who have lost a little one in the womb or in infancy will one day meet up with that child again. I'm convinced that a miscarried child won't be just a blob of cells in heaven. I'm convinced that somehow that child will be fully formed and mature. And I'm also convinced that you'll recognise each other. And I'm also convinced as I can be that babies of unbelievers will be in the presence of the Lord forever. If there were no other reason to turn to Christ, that should be sufficient. But in the grief that you experience from the loss of a loved one, there's hope that you will see them again. So what are we to make of all this? Let's boil it down to a handful of points. Death, physical death, is coming to us all. There is no escape. Death, physical death, is not the end. It's a transition to a different state, a new kind of life. Death, physical death, will be followed by judgment. Judgment that will determine your, whether your eternity is one of unending joy in the presence of the Lord or unspeakable suffering cut off from him. Death, physical death, will mark the end of any opportunity for you to make that decision to trust in Christ and thus ensure your eternity of joy. Therefore, this life, this brief life that we live now is the only opportunity we get to make that decision. One day, death and Hades will give up their dead for judgment. 
then both death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire, along with every person whose name is not found written in the book of life. I call on you all then to search your hearts this morning. Make sure your relationship with Jesus Christ is genuine. Make sure your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Make sure that you're not one of those to whom Jesus says, Depart from me, for I never knew you. Well, this hasn't actually been a message about heaven and hell, but as I finish up, there's a couple of things you need to know. If the Bible is true, and I'm absolutely convinced it is, if the Bible is true, then both heaven and hell are real places. One day there'll be a new heavens and a new earth, it says, and it tells us that we will have things to do in that new heavens and new earth in the afterlife. We won't be floating around on clouds with wings on our backs playing harps. That's sentimental rubbish. Absolute rubbish. I don't know exactly what our work will consist of in this new heavens and earth, but I do know that we'll be active and gainfully employed. And don't give me any nonsense about Jesus being too nice and too loving to send anyone to hell. He, Jesus, is the one who spoke the most about hell. He, Jesus, is the one that claims to be the righteous judge that will determine the eternal fate of every man, woman and child on the planet. He makes the judgment about who to send there and he will be sending some there. Have you made that choice about which way you want to go? But Jesus is also the one who shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. He shed his blood so that none of us need to fear abandonment to hell. If we turn from our sins now, he promises to forgive our sins and to wash us whiter than snow. He promises to make us righteous, to enter into the presence of a holy God forever. To close your eyes for a moment, please. Ask yourself the most serious question you could ask. Have I put my trust in Jesus Christ? Have I committed my life to follow this one who poured out his blood for me? If your answer is no, I haven't done that yet, would you do it now? prayed earlier on a prayer Lord would you forgive me of my sin Lord would you change my heart Lord would you make me new if anyone is in Christ he is a new creation the old is gone the new has come it says it's true 
Jesus Christ does that for those who will put their trust in him. Lord, I thank you this morning that this life is not the end. This life, Lord, is our opportunity to turn to you, to trust you, to experience new life, a new life that in some way will be changed in eternity but will continue in eternity. Lord, I thank you that that you guarantee our future. Lord, that you give us a deposit of the Holy Spirit when we trust in you that is a guarantee of our eternal future. Jesus, I pray this morning that you will encourage those of us who have put our trust in you, that our future is secure in your hands, that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And Lord, if there's any here that have not yet responded to your call in their life, Lord, I pray that you will do that work in their hearts this morning. Change them from unbelievers to secure in you. And Lord, we will give you all the glory, all the praise and all the honour and we will cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord for all eternity. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au